morning. morning. Good to see you all here this morning. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. Nehemiah 9, verse 21. Video series resumes tonight on Samson at 6 p.m. Bring finger foods as usual, and it says we're out of pop. So if you're at the store, pick something up. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7, Andrea's number for contact. Um, note the deficit. What does that number say? Need to update. We have reconciled that. So that the new number will be in, uh, in the bulletin next week. Uh, that's been reconciled. There was an error. Um, the, the number was wrong even last week. So we'll, we'll update that next week. Thank you for putting that note in there. You can see uh, George's address there. He is home and he is with us, if you had, did not notice. Good to see you. Harvest party, September 28th, 4 to 8 p.m. That's at the Armstrong's, uh, and you see all the details there. And then, of course, the um, next, uh, uh, Dean and Kathy will be in, and then the next day, Sunday, uh, Dean will be speaking, and we're going to have the catered dinner. So uh, make all your plans for that. That's not this coming weekend. It's the next one, so it's, it's coming soon. Have to sign up for the dinner. Sign up for the dinner. Sign up for the catered dinner. <clears throat> Thanks to the deacons who are working on the building. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I happened to be down here for a minute or so yesterday, and it was like a beehive around here. There was guys in trees with <laughs> chainsaws and things, and I thought, this is not for me. <laughs> I'm leaving. So thanks a lot, guys. It's a bunch of work, and I very much appreciate it. Anything else that I've forgotten, missed, overlooked? I have a card, speaking of the McLeods, and I'll read that. Dear TBC family, words cannot express how thankful we are for all of your kindness to us. All the beautiful cards, phone calls, personal visits, food, and monetary gifts have been so heartwarming and encouraging. Your prayers for us have been felt and have undergirded us for the many changes and struggles ahead. We are truly blessed to have our wonderful Thornville Baptist Church family. Thank you for your love, concern, and prayers. We love you all. Psalm 73:26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. With love and gratitude, George and Sheila. Thank you very much for that card. Yes. Oh. Okay. And and where exactly is that? Yes. Okay. The Cortland Mall. Okay. Yeah, down that way. Okay. About a mile or two, um, 
Okay. All right. Thanks for that update. All right. So our scripture for meditation this morning is Psalm 111. That's page Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless our service this morning. Phil, it's you again. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. 
not just us who are your ecclesia and your called out ones, your children, but Lord, the words would fall upon those who have stony hearts. Lord, it would invade those hearts, break those hearts, and your spirit dwell within them. And they too may know the wonderful salvation of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. For this, Lord, we pray this ultimate end. Be with us through this hour. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Will you take your red Trinity hymnal and turn to number 19? 19 in the red. <clears throat> Yes, ma'am. Favorite hymn and reason? 
America the Beautiful, yes ma'am. I believe it's in the brown. Do we have a reason for this one this morning? Good thoughts. Good hymn. Did we find a page yet? 572. 572 in the brown. 572.
scripture reading this morning is from Nehemiah 9, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 3, and then hopping over from 5b through 6. Somebody's taken mercy on the reader, I think, today, so. (laughs) If you'll stand with me, we'll read together. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God For a quarter of the day, and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God, standing on the stairs. Let's skip down to 5b. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, in the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and to the multitudes of heaven worship you. ask that the Lord would bless the reading of his word. You take your brown hymnals this time and turn to number 234. Two, three, four in the brown.
Our text this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. Our last look at Nehemiah took us to the celebration of the Feast of the Tabernacles by this new generation of Israelites. A message I entitled Hardy Obedience because when they heard of this regulation of the law, they implemented it immediately. And so when we see neglected duties in the Word of God, That's something not to pray about. Those are the things that we need to put into practice. We can say, well, I didn't know about them. Okay, but you know now, so then you put it into practice and follow what you know. God isn't going to change his word. He's not going to change his truth because you can't handle the truth. expects us to be obedient. And obedience can be given even when we don't feel like it. We used to teach our kids like that. They say, I don't feel like doing that. And we would come back with, we don't care what you feel like, just do it. And in fact, it is obedience first, which often brings the proper feelings. You obey and then you feel good about that and you feel that you've done the right thing. Being the sinners that we are, God's commands often run contrary to our desires on any given matter. Just think about that. But when we obey, God blesses. He blesses our lives. Then secondly, we learn something of the importance of Holy Day celebrations. The key events in the life of Israel's spiritual history were celebrated by festivals, a number of which lasted a week or more. Key events in the Christian church require no less on our part. These holy days, holidays, that's where that word comes from. These holidays are in addition to the weekly worship rendered to God on the Lord's day. And we looked at some of the reasons for special holidays. They cause us to reflect on some of the aspects of the workings of God which we might otherwise ignore or forget. Secondly, the celebration brings us together for fellowship and joy around a God-centered activity. Thirdly, the celebration of holy days broadens our vision beyond ourselves to others because of the love of God that he has shed abroad in our hearts. Feasting, drinking, gifts giving, helping the poor, these are all part of the holiday celebrations, at least in our Christian traditions. And then fourthly, we learn the celebrations of holy days afford us the opportunity to hear the word of God on neglected Bible themes. And I like the holidays for that very reason. It forces me as the pastor to preach on such things as the birth of Christ. Now, I wouldn't do a whole series on the birth of Christ, but It forces me to do statements on the incarnation. Come Easter time, same thing, on the resurrection of Christ. So it's important that we have these days on our church calendar. Now today, we come to a rather lengthy chapter in Nehemiah, chapter 9. 
in which the Israelites, as part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, called an assembly on the eighth day according to the law. Chapter 8, verse 18. One of these fellowships or festivals that they had forgotten, they had let slide in their history, and then they read it in the law, and it changed their whole uh, perspective on things. So as we come today to our study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that it is true and faithful and that it is the solid rock upon which we build our faith. The rock is Christ, but then what, we, what can we say about him? We say that he's the living word of God. So we're basing what we learn and what we teach and what we, what we adhere to on the word of God, be it the living word who is Jesus or the written word which we have before us in the Bible. Bless these truths to our heart. Thank you for the written word, for men who preserve the Bible through years and years of persecution and book burnings and Bible burnings. But you preserved your word. And here we are this morning, each blessed by having a copy, a personal copy of the word of God. And we're so thankful for that. May we take full advantage of it in our country. We'll praise you for what you're going to do in our hearts today by your spirit as he takes the word, which is the sword of the spirit, and works among us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We're talking today about the subject of remembering and reflecting. Perhaps it seems a little strange to us that God would ordain a time of festival and rejoicing. Chapter 8, verse 17 talks about great joy that these people were experiencing. And then, (laughs) then, immediately, he calls for the solemn assembly of his people to confess their sins and to remember the mercies of God. Great joy, and then this whole thing of repentance and confession. Why must they go from party to penitence? From feasting, chapter 8, 14, to fasting, chapter 9, verse 1. From celebration, chapter 8, verse 17, to sackcloth and ashes, again, chapter 9, verse 1. Let's contrast. Well, a lot of reasons might be given, but I think the primary explanation is that Life in this sinful world as a believer is a balance of joy and sorrow. And the thing which creates our sorrow, the sin in our lives, must be confessed and repented of in order to experience the joy of the Lord. Something similar, I think, occurs at our communion services the first Sunday of the month. We begin the service with praise to God for his grace, for his goodness, People express their joy over God's intervention in their lives because of the blessed work of Christ. But at the close of the service, where are we? We reflect on what it costs God to redeem us and why. We think of our sin. We think of the cross. We think of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. So there's sorrow and remorse in our thoughts and in our prayers Though solemn, it's still joyful. As contradictory as that might 
seen. And underlying the joy is knowing that though we have sinned against God, Christ has died for us to cleanse us and forgive us and restore us to communion or fellowship with God and to bring us in harmony with our fellow men. This is what's going on here in our text. The Feast of Tabernacles was just that. It was a feast of opulent proportions which lasted for seven days. It celebrated God's goodness in the harvest of the land and in the provisions that God had made for ancient Israel in traveling from Egypt's bondage to the independence of the promised land. And immediately following was the sacred assembly of the eighth day. And on this day, the activities, well, they were quite different on the eighth day. Let's take a note. Firstly, there was fasting and dress appropriate for mourning, verse 1. Secondly, a separation from the unbelievers. Thirdly, there was confession of their own sins and those of their forefathers, verse 2. Fourthly, a study of the law of God, probably to demonstrate wherein they had been disobedient and needed forgiveness. And then five, finally, there was praise to God for his mercies and grace to a sinful people. Now, I can't deal with all of the details in this mixture of confession and praise that we find here. So what I hope to do is touch on the highlights of their remembering and reflection and draw out appropriate applications for our lives as Christians. Firstly, then, remembering God's goodness in spite of the people's sin. The first thing they do is they praise God as the eternal God and creator. Look at verse 5, the latter part. Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, this is a statement in their own language, their own colloquialism, of the eternality of God from everlasting to everlasting. The fact that God transcends time and space. That God, unlike man, did not have a beginning. And he doesn't have an end. And he's not limited to the confines of space or time. We might ask, well, how important is this truth about God? Well, let me say it is essential to what is next stated about him. Verse 6, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens. Think of the galaxies and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything. You know, the pagan concept of God is not God singular. The pagan concept of God is God's plural, little g. And in the Greek concept, the gods, I've got to say, were nothing more than superhuman beings who were fraught with all of the limitations of time, all the limitation of space that men experience. And all the sinful traits of men, if you know anything about the Greek gods, 
They were drunkards. They were fornicators. They were involved in incest, in lying, deception, power struggles, you name it. All their gods were just humanized versions of themselves. Wow. In other words, the true God was reduced to nothing more than higher human-like forms. Do you know that all the Oriental religions, all the modern pagans, teach the same identical thing? Nothing is new under the sun, says Solomon. The notion that we are God in the making, which is a modern thought, has its roots in pagan pluralism, and the pagan concept that God is nothing more, he's nothing more than a deified human being. But you know, the God of the Bible, the God who revealed himself to his people, explained, he explained, that he was distinct from his creatures, that he was not on a par with them, but above them, that he was not himself a creature of time and space, but the one who preceded time and space and was actually the creator of our world and the things that we find in it. That is a non-pagan view of God, and it's the only one that you're going to find in the scriptures. So here's a God worthy of our worship and our respect. Here is a God who does not answer to the whims of men, but is totally independent of man. His connection to us is not that he is a higher human life form, but is, in fact, our creator, our Lord. And while this is comforting to us who believe, i got to tell you, these truths are repulsive to unbelievers, which they reject in their willfulness. Romans 1 speaks about God's wrath being revealed from heaven. Let me read it for you. Against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 18. Okay, so I ask the question, what truth do they suppress? Verse 19. That what may be known about God, which God has made plain to them. Oh, God has made some things plain to them, but they suppress that knowledge. Well, what did they do with the plain truth of God? Verse 23, Romans chapter 2. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made made to look like mortal man, that is, gods or idols, and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is to be praised forever. Amen. Wow. What is he saying? What is Paul saying? He's saying they've humanized God. They demoted God 
to the natural realm of animals and birds and reptiles and things like that. And they said of these lesser things, these are gods. These are our gods. Nothing new, I might add. Nothing new. God speaking through Isaiah the prophet shows the folly of all this. And I love this text because it does show the folly. Let me read it for you. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. The blacksmith takes a tool and he works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammer. He forges it with the might of his arms. He gets hungry and he loses his strength. He drinks no water and he grows faint. Isaiah 44 verse 9 and following. Now picture this. Here's a blacksmith. He's using his strength to make an idol. But when he himself is hungry, when he's thirsty, when he's weak and in great need, the idol can't do anything about that. It can't help him. It can't give him stuff for his thirst or food for his uh, hurting body. Isaiah goes on to describe next the carpenter. So we have the blacksmith who works with metal. And now we're talking about another trade. The carpenter who uses wood chisels and calipers to shape a block of wood. Let me read it for you. In the form of a man, of a man in all of his glory that it may dwell in a shrine. Think of the Buddhists and how they have their little wooden statues in the house. Now reading on. Where did he get this block of wood? This is still Isaiah. Where did he get this block of wood? From a tree. Well, wow. <laughs> and the tree is used for fire to heat the house and to bake and cook food. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. And he bows down to it and he worships and he prays to it. And he says, save me, you are my God. No one stops to think. I'm still reading scripture. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, hmm, half of it I used for fuel. <laughs> Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Isaiah 44, verse 16 and following. You see how deluded. How blind. You say, well, men today are more sophisticated. They don't worship blocks of wood or sculptures of metal. Oh, really? What about crystals on chains? What about the stars in the heavens? What about angel pins and pictures and porcelain replicas? What about religious icons, pictures of the saints, statues, shrines of some, crosses, crucifixions? 
What about all the talk of the good self-image people who claim that we are gods in the making? Sophisticated or not, the unbelieving heart is still hell-bent on worshiping the creature over the creator. Israel praised God in our text for being eternal, for being distinct from the creation, for being their creator. They're not saying, we're one with you. You're just one of us, only in a little higher form. No, you are the creator. We are the creatures. Secondly, these exiles praise God for choosing them as his people and for keeping his promises. Look at verse 7. You are the one who chose Abraham. Verse 8. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. All of you know that Israel is the nation of people who descended from Abraham. You had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name, Jacob's name, was changed to Israel after his conversion. That's how we get the name Israel. A lot of people don't understand that. Why Abraham? Why didn't God choose somebody else? Well, you will search in vain to find the answer in some value we that he saw in Abraham or his descendants. Oh, well, he must have seen Abraham to be a good and righteous man, so that's why he chose Abraham. No, the Bible teaches the direct opposite. Let me read it for you. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers when he brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love and keep his commands. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 and following. And even more descriptive picture is painted by God in Ezekiel as he addresses Jerusalem. And Jerusalem stands for the theocracy in this text. Let me read it for you. Your ancestry and birth, speaking of the Israelites now, your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. What's with these ites? They're pagans. Where did I find you as my people? Among the pagans. That's where I found you. Let me read on. On the day you were born... Your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown into an open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. What is God saying? 
he is describing his people being treated like an aborted, unwanted child whose parents didn't want it, and therefore they threw it out into the open field to die. Say, well, that's not nice. No, but it's the truth. He goes on. Then I passed by, and I saw you. There he's out in the field. I saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live! Wow. I made you grow. And you grew up, and you became the most beautiful of jewels. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and I saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, which is in Scripture uh, a Jewish type of ceremony for marriage, to throw one's cover over another person. He goes on, I gave you my solemn oath, I entered into a covenant with you, yeah, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Marriage. Wow. Ezekiel 16, verse 2 and following. And so the picture here is of God coming upon an aborted nation, a people left in the field to die. They were experiencing life's final moments, breathing their last breaths, and God commanded them, live! And the despised child, the people who were hated by the surrounding nations, grew and became, under God's watch care, the most beautiful of jewels. And then God took his people as his own, and he wed them to himself as his bride, entering into covenant with them. And our text says of God, you have kept your promise because you are faithful. Verse 8. You are faithful. The election of God, brethren, whether referring to Israel as the elect nation or to Christ's people as the bride, his church, has all of its focus on the God of grace and not on the recipients of that grace. The choice of God predates human history. I <clears throat> don't know if you know that. Well, let me read it for you. Ephesians 2 verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Wow. In love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 4. And the choice God made like that of choosing Israel had nothing to do, nothing to do with picking worthy people, but solely with the discretion of God as in the case of Esau and Jacob. Paul writing in Romans says, Before the twins were born... Or had done anything good or evil. In order that God's purpose and election might stand. Not by works but by him who calls. Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written. Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. Romans 9 verse 11 and following. 
Now, we don't like to hear that God chooses his people solely on the basis of his own will, refusing to take into consideration their conduct, whether good or bad. We don't want to hear God say that he hates one and loves another. We want him to love everybody with equality. And when he doesn't, we want to claim, you are unjust. Our text says, he is righteous in his actions. Look at verse 8. And in this Romans text, Paul actually asks the question, here it is, is God unjust? Well, he just put it right out on the carpet there. And his answer was to quote God's claim to have mercy on whomever he wished. And it does not therefore, I'm reading scripture, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Romans 9 verse 16. What's he saying? He's saying God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't have to do anything except let justice take its course. And if justice takes its course, what's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to me? The soul that sins shall die. That's what the law says. See, well, that doesn't sound just to me. Well, let me ask the question. Do you want justice or do you want mercy? I don't want justice. I want mercy. I want grace. I want God saying, you know, you're a rascal and a wicked sinner. But I'm going to pardon you. And I'm going to show mercy on you because of the work of my son, Jesus Christ. A similar thing was said to the church at Corinth. Let me read it for you. Paul writes to them, now the Corinthians, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. That is, when God called you to be his child. Think of what you were when you were called. I think this is a good counsel for all of us. And then Paul answers the history to give them some reflection on what they should be thinking about. Think about what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world, the weak things, uh, the lowly things, the despised things. I'm reading scripture. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boast about the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 and following. Now notice this description. The foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised. It doesn't sound like the church was in any better Positioned than Israel as the aborted fetus out in the field.
Election, brethren, is an occasion to praise God and to thank the Lord. You're just getting what you don't deserve. You're getting mercy. I'm getting mercy. And then thirdly, the exiles thank God for his deliverance and salvation, verse 9 and following. Let me say it this way. Election is not salvation. It is not. Don't confuse the decree of God with the actual salvation. Election is the intent of God, the intent of God, to save a people for his own name's sake. Salvation is the actual act of deliverance. In Israel's case, the parting of the Red Sea provided but one exit from Egypt after numerous miraculous signs given to Pharaoh to convince him of the deity of Israel's God and the might of his power to do as he intended fell on deaf ears. In the case of the Church of Christ, the parting of the temple curtain from top to bottom in answer to the death of Christ after many miraculous signs failed to convince the Jews of Jesus' deity. Through the sacrifice of Jesus' blood, deliverance was made from our slavery to sin Freedom was granted to enter into the most holy place, which is our promised land, into the very presence of God. God came down and dealt with Pharaoh and the Egyptians on behalf of his chosen people so that they might actually go free. And God came down and dealt with Satan and the world and the flesh, our enemies, that we might actually be freed from their hold on us and begin to live for God. This is salvation. This is always salvation. God will never fail to save every last one of those that he has set his affection and love upon. And then fourthly, these exiles thank God for his spiritual and physical sustenance during their sojourn in the wilderness. Now their spiritual food was the law of God given to them on Mount Sinai. You remember that. A law which was just and right, containing decrees and commands that were good. Verse 13. No other nation but Israel had this privilege to know the will of God. The other nations were left in their sin, left in their superstition. Israel, once delivered by God, was sustained by God. They could feast on his word. They could know his will for their lives. They could live in a way which brought God's blessings upon them. No other nation. Think of that. For us as Christ's body, it's no less true. Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. What is that? Well, that's God's spiritual sustenance for the people that he saved. Peter puts it this way, like newborn babies crave 
pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. 1 Peter 2, verse 2. So God wants us to get past the baby stage in our spiritual lives, and to accomplish this, he has commanded us to be students of his word, and we are reminded that Christ is the living word. Make Christ the first and foremost thing you want to study in the scriptures. So these then are four wonderful things which Israel remembered about their God. Number one, he was the eternal creator distinct from creation. Number two, he had chosen them in Abraham and kept his promises to them. Number three, in choosing them, he went on to save them from their slavery and set them free. And number four, after saving them, he continued to sustain them spiritually with his laws and commands and physically with manna from heaven and water from the rock, verse 15. And verse 21 says, For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. End quote. And then beginning at verse 16 and following of our text, Nehemiah tells us what Israel's response was to these good things from God. What was their response? But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen. They failed to remember the miracles. Verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. Verse 28. They did what was evil in your sight. Verse 29. They became arrogant. And when Israel sinned in these many ways, what was God's response? It's a good question. You have these people thumbing their nose at God, digging into their sin, refusing to submit to his righteous laws. What did God do? Verse 17. You are forgiving and gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, Therefore you did not desert them. See also verse 19. Verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. He's saying that you didn't let them die of starvation or thirst in the wilderness wanderings. Verse 22. You gave them kingdoms and nations allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. That's what? That's victory over their enemies. Verse 23, you made their sons as numerous as the stars. That is, he didn't punish their children for their evil conduct. Right? 
As Israel persisted in its abandonment of God, yes, God gave them over to various enemies to bring them back to him. Verse 27, verse 28, and yet, and yet, verse 31 says, but in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Wow. I want to say, brethren, that my reason for sharing these themes with you from our text is to demonstrate how wonderful and marvelous our God really is. Think of these adjectives in light of our disobedience. Forgiving, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, giving of his good spirit to teach them, not abandoning them in the desert, in fact sustaining them in miraculous ways, giving them victory over their enemies, increasing their numbers, enlarging their borders, at all times gracious and merciful. Who couldn't love a God like that? Why would anyone sitting here this morning, learning these truths about God, fail to commit to him? Why the hesitation? And even if we sin, we surely do. Isn't there hope for our wicked hearts from a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love? From a God who stands ready to forgive? My charge to us today is let us not be stiff-necked and rebellious like Israel of old. If there are sins, we need to confess them to God, as this new generation did, and get on with establishing a working relationship with our Creator and Lord. And remembering the mercies of God in the biblical history with the people of Israel and reflecting upon its meaning for us as the new Israel of God is a necessary and good work. Don't forget what God has done historically. I think David models the godly course of action for us. King David. He says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your sins. Heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. And crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Psalm 103 verse 2 and 5. Can you imagine talking to yourself? David's talking to himself. And he's saying, soul, soul of David, don't forget all of God's benefits. And then he lists them. His forgiveness, his healings, his redemption, his crowning you with love and compassion, satisfying the desires that you have for good things, renewing your strength as if you were young again. 
May the Lord of glory send his good spirit to instruct us today in these things that we often forget. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We praise you for it. And ask that you would remind us of the things that we have forgotten. Nehemiah reminding his generation of how God has dealt and had dealt with them as his people. Despite our sin, despite our disobedience, despite our many failures, Lord, you come to us in redeeming grace. And in our day on the merit of Jesus Christ, punishing him for our iniquities and granting to us his righteousness and in his resurrection, life everlasting. Thank you, dear God, for loving us in such unselfish and gracious ways. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. That's the red hymnal. Number 32. We'll stand as we sing. Number 32.
our God is faithful, even when we're not faithful. Is if, if his faithfulness depended upon our faithfulness, we would be in deep, deep trouble. But Paul says he is faithful even when we're not faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny who he is. He cannot deny himself. Faithfulness is who he is. Praise God for that. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We just sang of it. Praise thee for it. Even when we're unfaithful, we remind ourselves that we're like Israel of old at times. More so than we'd like to think. You being faithful, all those wonderful things you accomplished, and then they turned their backs on you and forgot the miracles and your sustenance and your care and the law of God and the prophets that you sent to them. They even killed the prophets. They didn't want to hear, didn't want to hear, didn't want to hear, didn't want to obey. Oh, Lord, you have sent us your word as well, given us a copy of it. They didn't even have a personal copy. We have a personal copy of your word. And they have in our day the preaching of your word. And I pray that we will be finding ourselves faithful to you. And where we are unfaithful, we count on, we depend upon the mercy of Christ, the efficacy of his shed blood and his broken body. And we thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.